Well, thanks for the invitation to be with you, uh, not just today, but for the next uh, couple of weeks, and then I think the 14th of November as well. When folk ask me what I do these days, I say, well, when churches are in a real bad, bad place and they've scraped the barrel and still can't get anyone to preach for them, they come to me and that's fine by me. Um, and I enjoy the, the um, practice, uh, still the task of studying myself or preparing uh, for uh, these times together. Uh, so I've enjoyed uh, starting on, on Ruth again and looking at uh, what I believe God has in store for us at this point um, in, in our time together. I want to read in chapter one this morning and to read with you the first 15 verses of that chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. 
your people will be my people and your God, my God. And my guess is that some of those words are extremely familiar to you. And some of them maybe have never sunk in the way they need to and perhaps should have done. As we start this little mini-series in Ruth, I've given this morning's heading simply as being, it's complicated. I'm focusing on Ruth herself and what life has thrown up for her, apparently to her randomly. But from our perspective, biblically, God had been working in the background. If Ruth had been filling out her relationship status of her social media and had asked, uh, you know, married or unmarried, she'd probably put down, it's complicated. And that would be a fairly good way of describing not just her marital status, but the whole of her life. Her whole life was in a turmoil, total crisis, complicated very often, not by what she had done or not done, but complicated by the circumstances in her part of the world and complicated by what other people had done or said or not done or not said. And those things are perhaps hinted at in the opening words of chapter one which I'm calling complicated times. Complicated times. It simply says in verse one in the opening words, in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, right away, I guess that kind of throws up in our minds the idea that he's setting the historical context of the rest of this book, the time of the judges. But it's actually far more than the writer under God giving us historical context. It's about God's way of pointing to the spiritual climate at that point in time and history. The time of the judges. I guess sometimes we get over-romantic about the time of the judges. We think of the great superheroes uh, like Samson and Gideon. And we think, wow, what a time to be in with all these great big figures of biblical history walk the earth. But actually, spiritually, from God's point of view, behind that phrase, the time of the judges, is a dark cloud it was a repeated cycle of spiritual failure amongst the people of God. Rebellion by Israel uh, against God's rule over them would lead to judgment or discipline by God. Uh, then the people would be in a mess and wouldn't know what to do and they would repent of their sin and God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, a ruler and he would get them out of the mess they were in, defeat that enemy and off they go into a quiet spell. But very quickly, very all too quickly in the time of the judges, that cycle repeated itself. And if you go back and read through the book of Judges at your leisure, you find that's that constant cycle goes round and round and round. The people disobey, God judges, God delivers, the people are sorry, they repent of their sin, God sends a saviour, but they never learn the lesson that God has been saying to them all the way along. He wanted to be their king. 
but he brought them out of Egypt across the Red Sea through the wilderness journeys into the promised land. The great picture was that Jehovah was going to be their God spiritually and their king politically. He would rule their lives. They wouldn't need a human king. They wouldn't need a human ruler. They wouldn't need a human judge. The plan, the ideal under God, was that this nation of people that had been specially selected by God would themselves say, God's our God to, to worship, and God is our, our king who will rule us and guide us in every area of life. By the time the judges, as in fact a large part of the Old Testament, demonstrated Israel just couldn't hack the idea of just having God as the only God and couldn't handle the idea of God being the only king, the only ruler, the one who had the last word on every area of life. So in short, the time of the judges is a a brief way of saying the time of the repeated rejection by Israel of God as their king. And as a consequence, somebody like Ruth in Moab, just across the Dead Sea from Israel, grows up in a world which had very, very little spiritual guidance. No one modeling to the pagan world what it was to have God as the only object of worship and God as the only one who rules and guides and leads in life. In that sense, this is a pitiful, pitiful picture. The one people whom God had placed on earth to be a crystal clear modeling of a relationship to God that was precious, that was delightful, that worked were malfunctioning in their role. So we think of Moab, of Ruth and Moab, and they are complicated times. The world doesn't have a clear witness to the nature and character and being of God. I think that lesson of Israel's failure to be a crystal clear revelation of God to the world is something which we shouldn't miss as a church in the 21st century. There may have been days in our past, in this province, where there's a kind of generalized knowledge of Bible, of Christianity, of the gospel message. Even people who didn't accept it or embrace it, those who didn't go to church very often, births, weddings, that kind of stuff, would still have understood something about the heart of the Christian message. There was a God in heaven who called people to account about how they lived, how they talked, how they behaved, and would ultimately judge the just and the unjust, the saved and the unsaved. Our world isn't like that anymore. And so in a powerful way, the church in the 21st century needs to understand that they are specially ordained by God to be that crystal clear revelation to show, not just to tell people, not just to preach to people, but to show in our lives that we worship God as the only God and that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords in our lives. He's a ruler. He has the last say 
in everything we do, everything we believe, everywhere we go, all the decisions of life, we submit them to Christ as king. Now, complicated times because that was missing in the world. Secondly, in this first chapter, and we're not going to get the first verse for a little while yet, um, we read that there's a famine in the land. And I call this second heading simply complicated circumstances. The lives of Ruth and Orpah had been thrown into chaos by the decision of Naomi and her husband with their two sons to leave Bethlehem in the famine and go into Moab. Bethlehem, oddly, actually means the house of bread. But there's a famine in the land, verse 1. Not the result of worldwide climate change, although it's probably going to be put down as that sometime or other. Wasn't the result of agricultural ignorance by Israeli farmers. Definitely wasn't a question of poor quality soil around the Bethlehem district. Remember, that was the land that had been flowing with milk and honey. I think there's two things set by side in verse 1. The time of the judges and there's a famine in the land is saying this was one of those moments in Israel's history when God was disciplining his people. They were acting in this uh, random way of doing their own thing in their own way in their own time rather than God as their king. And God sends a famine to wake up the people, to rebuke the people, to bring them back into that place of fellowship and obedience to him. And so when we read that Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her sons became asylum seekers in Moab, we might think, well, verse 2 is just suggesting that in a very matter-of-fact way. That's what they did. You might even think, well, good on you, Elimelech. You actually had enough sense to take your family to where there was food over in Moab. But there are two major uh, problems with his decision. First of all, he's trying to run away from God's discipline. God hasn't sent famine to his people, and apparently that was the only country around that had the famine. He hasn't sent famine there for them to run away and escape to somewhere else. He's brought the famine there so that as a nation, the people will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God again and cry out to him in repentance and in new commitment. Running away from God's discipline, running away from where God has placed us for his purposes is never a good decision. And part of the complications in Ruth's life are caused by the fact that here were people who were not showing Christ or God's lordship and kingship over them as they should do, and in fact had run away from the consequences of what was going on. That's bad enough. But their choice of going to Moab was probably the worst possible destination choice they could ever have made. Geographically, it made sense. It was just on the other side of the Dead Sea from where Bethlehem was and the nearest uh, place where food was available at that point in time. 
Materially, it made sense because there was food enough to spare in Moab at that moment. But spiritually, it's the craziest thing that Elimelech could ever have done. If you read back through Numbers and then into uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua, you'll find the Moabites are always talked of as God's enemies. When Israel was coming out of the land of Egypt, going across into the promised land, they came to Moab, and the Moabites decided, we don't like the Israelites, we don't want them to go over into the uh, Transjordan area and start living in the promised land. And they called Balaam and Balak and got them to try and curse, bring God's curse on Israel. Didn't work. But God determined that Moabites then would be considered as his enemies for the next 10 generations. The Moabites, having not been able to curse Israel, decided to infiltrate them, both with idolatry and with immorality. There were awful, black, dark days, and that interaction between the people heading towards the promised land and the Moabites who were trying to prevent them brought about this hostility, not just between Israel and Moab, but between God and Moab. And so for Elimelech, whose name actually means God is my king, to make a decision to head into Moab territory, was flying in the face of God's explicit prohibition. And so what happens for Ruth and for Oprah is a life that becomes complicated, not just by Israel as a whole failing to be the light of God to the world, but now particularly by one man and his wife and sons who try to run away from God's discipline and go to where God has put a ban on them. Ruth's life has become more complicated by Elimelech and his decision. There's a reminder there, isn't there, that sometimes the consequences of our sin, individually or collectively, ripple out to all kinds of other people. I think it's sometimes a danger for us, if we're honest as Christians, that we kind of confuse the fact that God forgives us our sin with the fact that the ripples and consequences of our sin live on. It is glorious, it's wonderful, it's precious to say, if I confess my sin, he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I've held on to that for 60 odd years. It's brilliant, it's wonderful. If you've never come to that place of calling out to God for cleansing and forgiveness, it's there for you this morning. Don't miss that glorious, wonderful call of the gospel. But don't ever imagine that being forgiven for your sin means that you can do what you like and get forgiveness at the end of the day and have no consequences. Sin has all kinds of consequences. And sometimes we don't even see them in our own day. And Elimelech and his sons were dead before Ruth has to face 
the complicated situations that his rebellion has brought upon her. Complicated times, complicated circumstances, and lastly this morning, complicated choices. Circumstances for Ruth got worse when the famine ended in Bethlehem. For Naomi, things got better. And she had a mind, wow, this is wonderful. I've heard that God has brought food back to Bethlehem. I'll leave Moab and I'll get back to where I grew up. I'll get back to my family and friends such as are left in Bethlehem. But that decision of Naomi's in verse 6 to head back to Judah starts with her taking along Oprah and Ruth as well, her two daughters-in-law. And it's just said again, quite simply there, that they started the journey back. But what a traumatic thing for Ruth and Oprah. We're not suggesting that they were sinless, they certainly weren't. But in a sense, they were innocent in terms of the rebellion that had been going on in Israel and the divine correction and discipline of it. And now suddenly their lives are going to be further thrown into chaos. They've already lost their husbands. They've already lost their father-in-law. And now they're going to have to go and start life with Naomi in a foreign country. And then verse 8 gets life more complicated again. Naomi decides to stop where they are and put the issue back onto Ruth and Oprah's own shoulders there to make their own decision about their future. Are they going to go back and live in their mother's house, in their mother's home? Or are they going to come with Naomi into new country and territory? And it's a complicated choice. I think rock and a hard place will come to mind almost immediately. Option one is stay where they are. And it's the option which ultimately Oprah takes for herself in verse 14. It's the option which Naomi suggests them both in verse 15. It appears at one level to be the least worst of the two options. But if you look at verse 8, you find that Naomi's, Naomi's suggestion is the only place for them to go is back to their mother's home. Really unusual phrase that in scripture. Usually if you're going back to your kith and kin, it's back to your father's house. But for an obvious reason here, they're invited to go back to your mother's home. In other words, her father was dead. Not only was her husband dead and her uh, father-in-law dead, but so was her father. So what chance was there of Ruth and Oprah finding new husbands for themselves back home? They'd been married for 10 years. Um, then they had been widowed for some time after that. Uh, there was no father around to pay any dowry money. They weren't in that category of people in Moab as the most marriageable young woman around. No widow's pensions. No universal credit, with or without uplift. 
no-cap food store to help them out when things were tough. So actually option number one was a pretty tough call. As Naomi says, stay with the people and stay with the gods that you are familiar with. Such as option one. Option two is to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Well, there was food there now at last. That's not so bad. Naomi did have some people who were related to her. That's a positive. But as Naomi makes things clear to Ruth and to Oprah that moment in time, particularly to Ruth now, she couldn't produce any more sons for them. That would have been the kind of Levite marriage rule that uh, could have been a way out for them back in, in Israel. Who would want a Moabite woman as their wife? in Judah? That's a question and a half, isn't it? Here's the person from the country that God has banned for the next 10 generations. They're not allowed to go into the temple, into the, into the sanctuary courts. They're not allowed to have any intercourse with God's people. They are the banned enemy race, the Moabites. And here now is Naomi about to take Ruth, or here's one of her options, to take Ruth back with her into Bethlehem, back into Judah. And what chance was there of her finding any husband there? Zilch. If I find it hard coming to Northern Ireland and being an Englishman, then a hundred times worse going as a Moabite widow woman to live in Israel. It's interesting you read through the rest of Ruth. I hadn't noticed this until this week. That Ruth is nearly always called Ruth the Moabite in the rest of this book. She makes, we'll say next week, a commitment that God will be her God, etc. The lovely part of chapter one. But all the way through the book, she's Ruth the Moabite. It's Naomi who's come up from Moab. It's Ruth the Moabitess. And that underlines on every page how complicated the choice was that she had to make. As Naomi says to her and to Oprah, here's your choice. You make the decision. Go back to your own home, back to your mother's house, or come with me. What a complicated choice to make. Rock and hard place. There's no easy solution no way of unraveling that tangled mess of life that Ruth finds herself in because of that general times created by Israel's disobedience and rebellion that complicated life for everybody took away from the world. An example of someone who said, God is my God and God is my king. Complicated circumstances as husband has died or father-in-law has died and they have rebelled against the discipline of God and come to Moab when they shouldn't have been there at all. Now this complicated choice. Do I go back to my mother's house and stay with Moabite people even though they know I've got a heritage linked to, to the Israelites or do I go to Israel where they know that I'm a Moabite S? 
And I don't want us to go on from there this morning, Chris. I want us to feel how complicated life was for her at that moment in time. And God doesn't give her a quick fix of all her problems. God doesn't say to her, Ruth, just go along with Naomi and you know what? I've got Boaz waiting down the corridor and he's going to make everything okay for you. There's nothing at that moment in time for Ruth other than this life that is complicated in chaos, in crisis. And and so what does Ruth do? Well, the actual choice she makes will come to you next week, God willing, but what she doesn't do is what struck me most for our hearts and minds today. What would we do? What, what are we doing now as we go from the old normal to the new normal, as we try and cope with all the changes that are going on in legislation about COVID, et cetera, et cetera, changes that are happening in church life and changes that are happening in society and changes that are happening in your study and changes that are happening in your employment and changes that are happening in your business. The whole world seems to be this turmoil of complicated stuff for which we have no easy answers. What do we do? The very thing that Ruth didn't do, she didn't start to blame. I can imagine if it was me and maybe some of you as well, you'd be going and saying, Naomi, why did you bring me down here to begin with? How come you left Israel? How come you brought your husband and your, your sons down here? How come you encouraged them to marry me when you, you know, all the blame, Naomi, it's all your fault, Naomi. Or blame the Israelites. Why didn't you as a nation hold on to what you should have been doing and behave properly and live properly and follow God as king properly? And then I won't be in this mess. Look at, it's all your fault. Maybe even blaming God. We'll see next week that there's a bit of Naomi that does that. God has dealt with me ever so bitterly. But I love the fact that as we reach this point in the story, there is nothing in the record of Scripture that shows us Ruth pointing the finger at other people and trying to lay the blame on them. And so I ask myself, how does God see us today as his people in this complicated world that has opened up for us in the past couple of years? Have we found it rather easy to blame anybody and everybody around? Yes, I've done it. Why did the Prime Minister make that decision? Why didn't he do it earlier? Why didn't the government? Why didn't the NHS? Why didn't, you know, over and over and over again, we love to blame. And yet all the time what God wants from us is what he gets from Ruth your God will be my God and my King what God wants from us in the middle of these complicated days in which we live is not despair not fright not anxiety and certainly not blame it is the challenge of this whole book to let God be God and let God be king. 
not just the one whom we worship, but the one whom we follow and obey. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all of Scripture. It applies in so many different ways to us. And we thank you for this book, which has throughout history been an inspiration of a God whose love and care and provision is wonderfully set out for us. But we stop at this part of our first chapter and just take on board or that life can get extremely complicated for us and sometimes not for anything we've done or said or not done or not said, just the way life is for us. And we pray, Lord, as we try and handle complicated things in our society and in our world at this moment in time, there might be people who aren't wallowing in anxiety or fear, not trying to pass blame and responsibility to other people, but simply allowing you to be truly God and truly King, numbering our days, guiding us, leading us, directing us as we simply put our trust afresh in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.